Fill us with your joy. Lord, bless us from your word now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you can take a seat. Good morning, good morning. It's a privilege to be with you. If you're joining us online for the first time or in person, my name is Christopher, one of the pastors here. And uh, this is the part of our service where we opened up God's word and we believe God speaks so we get to hear from him. And it's good to have the kiddos in the building as well. Um, I'm looking forward to sharing God's word with you. Uh, if you notice from the passage, we're going to be talking about some fun stuff uh, about eating food, and I'm good at I'm good at that. Hopefully, you're good at that, and so we're going to get into that. One little quick tidbit, just want to share with you before we get into the message on Alpha. Uh, we talked about it last week, and we're in a kind of redirecting season of refocusing and prioritizing on the mission of God. That was the message last week. We'll be taking the next few weeks to unpack that. And I just want to share some good news and just some exciting things that we talked about Alpha being a thing that we're going to start together over the next couple months to open up spaces for people that don't know Jesus to come in and hear from him and uh, hear, and hear about him and ask questions. And uh, it was a beautiful program that we ran, a ministry that we got to see people come to Jesus. And so we're looking forward to that. But uh, we had our first interest meeting this past Tuesday. Shout out to those who joined. About 20 folks joined in, and we're looking forward to seeing the team grow. But if you are interested in joining Alpha, you didn't make it to the interest meeting, you're wondering, what is it? How can I be a part of this? Something's burning in your heart to, to step forward in this season of evangelism and mission, but you're not sure what to do for the next step. I encourage you, uh, talk to our very own Brooke Harney. You can talk to me, one of the staff members. Um, we have another interest meeting coming up, but we're putting together the team right now so we can start training and, and praying for folks and inviting them. Uh, because as you see, we're starting April 12th. Gives us some time to go, but we're really looking forward to um, just to what the Lord will do in that space. And so again, Alpha, a couple months, but we're building a team. And we're looking for about 10 folks to be a core team of that and some leaders. And so if you know anything about Alpha, come talk to us. If not, um, we can point you to the right direction. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing uh, not just what God does in the people, but also what God does in our hearts as we engage in his mission. Amen? In his mission. So we're part of a series we're doing right now, part two, called The Mission of God. And thinking through what it looks like to join Jesus on his mission, because he does have a mission on earth. So last week, just a way of recap to catch us up so we can move into this next um, installment. Just want to give you a few uh, points that we talked about last week. If you were here, we walked through Matthew 9 and looked at what Jesus was doing um, in his ministry. That the three years, 30 years he spent before ministry, but the three years he spent on intentional ministry, he was doing something very specific. We see that Jesus, he said his mission, if you're wondering what was Jesus doing on earth, besides all the things that you see him doing, everything he was doing was pointing to him seeking and saving the lost, those who were outside of relationship with God. That was Jesus' number one mission, to seek and save the lost. Number two, we saw that, that as he looked on the crowd, he looked around at the people. He didn't just get frustrated and say, oh, you guys are missing it. He had compassion for them. His heart broke because they were people who were helpless and in need. And we're shifting our perspective. Hopefully, if you're looking at the world and you, and you judge them or you are frustrated with them, um, we want to adopt the perspective of Jesus that as he looked at people, he said, we are, our hearts break because they're helpless and in need, in need of rescuing, in need of help, in need of a savior. So that drove Jesus to serve them. And he told us that, that the, the, the harvest is ripe right now, Jesus said. As you look out, the problem is now we don't have enough ripe hearts the problem right now, he says, is we don't have enough ready hands. We don't have enough workers. 
I find that encouraging and challenging that Jesus says, I want you to pray, but don't, don't pray just for the harvest. Pray for more people to go out and reap the harvest because the harvest is plentiful. It's ready. There are people ready to respond. We just need to go out and engage them. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. And lastly, we see in Jesus' prayer, John 17 and also John 20. This is so big for Jesus that the last interaction he has with his disciples. I don't know if you caught this. In John 20, he is post-resurrection, about to ascend. He's sitting in a room with all his apostles and disciples, and he says, just as I have been sent, so now I send you. And then he breathes on them, and he fills them with the Holy Spirit. And we see that connection to Acts 1, where he says, you're going to be my witnesses in all the world. And then he fills them with the Holy Spirit. And then they go and turn the world upside down. And not to put it lightly, but we are here today because Holy, the Holy Spirit came and filled those 12 guys and the, and the ladies around. And they started spreading Jesus. You're here in this seat because of that. Because people, ordinary Christians, not just apostles, Ordinary Christians took the mission of God seriously and spread it around because it was too good of news to keep hushed. It was too good of news to keep quiet. And so that is, that is a beautiful synopsis of an, an overlook of Jesus, but it's not enough just to, to say Jesus has a mission and we should go live on it, right? Like we know it, but if I just told you, let's just go live on it. I think one of the things that we wrestle through is like, how do we approach this? So the question I want to answer today is for this part two is, is how did Jesus approach his mission? There's a lot of good books out there, a lot of conferences, a lot of good programs. But if, if I'm honest and you're honest, the most effective thing we can do, the most fruitful thing we can do is just to sit down and say, Jesus, what did you do? Because that was effective and I want to copy what you did. To the best of my ability, I want to copy what Jesus did. All the conferences and books are just taken from what Jesus did. Did. So how did Jesus approach his mission? If you have a conviction, hopefully something welling up inside of you these last few weeks, that we're supposed to be engaging in this more. And maybe there's other folks in this room and in our church that engage in this high, high engagement in, their, in the lost folks around them, the coworkers and neighbors, and, and we're thankful for that example. But, but the most, uh, I think, common uh, sense of where we're at of mission is that we could grow in it, right? We could grow in how we engage. We can grow in pursuing and being intentional and prioritizing what Jesus prioritized. But as I think through evangelism and mission, and maybe you have this wrestle, the same thing I wrestle with as I thought through this message, was that oftentimes we come to the table thinking about mission with this limited view of evangelism that kind of strips it down to like, you have to either be an overseas missionary or you have to go cold calling door to door and hand out tracts. Right? I don't know if you think about mission and you're hearing me talk about the mission of Jesus and seeking, saving the lost. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, it's either for the missionaries over there, overseas, or it's for the, the folks who just go around and randomly talk to strangers and share the gospel with them. And while those two things are important and needed and, and biblical and helpful, and if you feel called to do it, do it. Uh, that is a limiting view of evangelism because Jesus did something other than just those things as well. And here's what I want us to understand. You can go to the next slide. If every disciple of Jesus is called to this mission, raise your hand if you believe every disciple of Jesus is called to this mission. Okay, if every disciple of Jesus is called to this mission, then we must believe that it is attainable for all people in every generation and culture. Amen? 
It means that it has to be accessible for every person in every generation and every culture, different continents, different contexts, different gift settings. I don't care if you're extrovert or introvert. I don't care if you're uh, high energy or low energy. I don't care if you're from America or Africa. I don't care if you're from the 21st century or the 10th century. It is accessible for every single person that follows Jesus. Why? Because it is for every single person that follows Jesus. It's that why. We don't want to limit it. And so the assumption we need to start with, the premise is that this is something that you and I should be able to do. It's not out of reach. It is not for the professionals. It is not just for the missionaries or pastors. It is for every single one of you. And in fact, the way you are wired leans perfectly into how you're supposed to reach people. That God did not create you one way and then say, I want you to go completely opposite of how you're created to reach people. No, no, you are created in a certain way to probably reach people that are uniquely positioned for you to reach that I can't reach. And your neighbor can't reach. But you are gifted with the Holy Spirit and called and purposed with certain gifts to be able to do that. And so we want to say, what is that approach? If it's accessible, then what does it look like for me as an ordinary, just following Jesus? I work nine to five. I'm, I whole school my kids. I work, in, I work at a bank, whatever, Starbucks. I just got a normal life, Chris. I'm not just seminary graduate. How do I engage in mission then if I don't see myself as something that's trained or professional? So here's the outline we're going to look through as we walk through the scriptures. We're going to be looking through the gospel of Luke, which if you're reading with us in our plan, we are working through a chapter a day and we're almost finished. We'll finish it this week. Number one, the overlooked approach. We're going to look at Jesus through the gospel of Luke and something that we might overlook when it comes to evangelism. Number two, the powerful witness of that approach. And then number three, get really practical and just share a little bit of my story in some helpful ways for us to engage and I'm talking about like, when I talk about practice, this is like one of those sermons that when I talk about like responding in obedience, I'm hoping that we like do it this week. And usually we would say like, yes, we should like, forg- if you talk about forgiveness, we should forgive someone right away. But I'm talking about this is so simple that every single one of us can do it tomorrow. We could do it Tuesday. We could do it Wednesday. We don't need anything. You don't need training. You don't need an, a class. You can do this this week. You still with me? You excited? You leaning in? Okay, let's pray real quick. Let's just pray, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us once more before we jump in. God, we, we really want to hear from you today. We want to hear from you. We want to be encouraged. And Lord, more than anything, I want, I just, there's a burden as I've been praying for this message for our folks, that there would be a sense of, of confidence that rises out of this message and some fruit that happens, that we say, we're going to change something in our schedule to be able to do this. And I believe God, as we step forward in obedience, because your Holy Spirit is in us and we obey you, practice the way of Jesus like you would, Jesus, that you would bear fruit and we would see kingdom expansion. I pray that would happen, that you would open up our eyes and our ears, put our guard down so we could hear what you have to say. If you want to hear from God today, would you say amen with me? Amen. Amen. All right, the overlooked approach. So you think about the life of Jesus, if you've been reading with us through the Gospel of Luke, you understand uh, from last week's message and maybe just from knowing that Jesus was always on mission. Like if there wasn't a time when Jesus wasn't trying to seek and save the lost, it wasn't just at the cross that he was doing that work. It was leading up all the way through his life and his three years of ministry that he was doing this. 
And so because Jesus was always on mission, the next question you and I should ask and lean in to see is what did Jesus spend his time doing? If he was always on mission, then the greatest way for you and I to see how we approach mission in a more fruitful way is to say, Jesus, what did you spend your time doing? Because I just want to start doing what you did, right? I, I, if you were so effective in mission, then I want to just join you in doing what you did because I believe it is going to be helpful. We have to ask, what did Jesus spend all his time doing? And if you read through the Gospels, and if you're just slowing down enough to notice some patterns, you would notice there's a couple of things that Jesus does over and over and over again. You might be reading through the Luke with us, and, and you're saying, wow, like, there's some repetition to Jesus' parables, to his teaching, to what he does. And if you ever notice this phrase, it's, it's in uh, most of the Gospels. In my translation, ESV, it says this, as was his custom. You ever seen that? As was his custom. That's, that's referring to Jesus' normal patterns and habits. Like you wake up in the morning and you check your phone as was your custom, or you, you brush your teeth, or you drive in traffic. It was a normal regulative pattern and rhythm of Jesus's life. And here's what those things were for Jesus. Number one, as was his custom, he would teach people, right? Jesus is, the gospels are full of him teaching. He would teach in crowds and he would teach in the synagogues. Jesus went to church, y'all, and he was faithful attendance. He went in to the synagogue on what? The Sabbath day with the people of God and he opened the scroll and he would teach the people there. So much so that his first sermon, the, the crowd wanted to kill him and try to throw him over a cliff. Someone say a tough crowd, okay? Tough crowd. First sermon. Um, Jesus was a teacher, okay? He taught people about the kingdom. He taught from parables to uh, exegetical teaching. He taught all in between stories and whatever. He taught people about the kingdom. But not just teaching. Uh, it's one thing he did on top of teaching the company. It was healing. If you notice, especially in Mark, it talks a lot about this, but Jesus healed people. He taught them and then he healed. In some passages like Matthew 14, 14, it talks about him actually being around a whole bunch of people and he healed all the people in that town. Casting out demons, healing people from diseases, healing people that were lepers or lame or blind. Jesus had power. He was not just a good teacher. He, has, he also had power because why? He was God in the flesh. He taught people. He healed them. But there's something else that Jesus does that I find so fascinating that we overlook, maybe because we over-spiritualize Jesus' life to our detriment. But if we had normal eyes, we would see that Jesus does something else that you and I can do tomorrow. You might not be able to teach like Jesus. You might not be able to, to see healing like Jesus all the time. But this one thing that Jesus spends a lot of his time doing is something you and I can do, and it's called hospitality hospitality. I don't know if you think about the word hospitality and the first thing that comes to your mind is Jesus. You might think about Chick-fil-A as hospitality. Come on, somebody. Hospitality, the Southern hospitality. I went to, where's Chick-fil-A? Is Georgia is where it's from? I went to in, in uh, Georgia and I was there and uh, I sat in a Chick-fil-A um, because uh, I just wanted to because there's Lord's presence there. And so I sat there and did my devotions and uh, it was an experience like no other. Doing your devotions in Chick-fil-A was great. But what did I notice the most besides good food? They kept serving me. Like they gave me free coffee over and over again and lemonades. And can I refill your this and serve? Like, I've never been to a joint that was that hospitable, especially when you talk about fast food restaurants. Hospitality, welcoming people, eating with them. 
One of my friends and pastors up in Bible college, he would always say this. If you think about Jesus' life, you can describe it in one sentence. Jesus ate really good food with really bad people. Oh, I love that. Jesus ate really good food with really bad people. Who can eat in this place? Anyone can eat? Raise your hand high. Come on. We're off of the fast. No shame. Jesus ate really good food, and we could do that in the Bay Area, with really bad people. So what I want to do is just take a few moments and to kind of just trace this through the Gospel of Luke. Because if you're a Bible student and you're, you're like, come on, Chris, I, I, I know that's a cute sentence, but where is that in the Bible? Like Gabe read a passage, but really, you're going to make a whole sermon around like one story? I just want you to, with fresh eyes to look with me through the Gospel of Luke to be amazed at Jesus' repetition and emphasis on food. I think it will shock you. And I'm not even including all the references. Let's start with Luke 5. Let's see Jesus' take on hospitality and the connection to mission that Jesus had. Luke 5, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Gabe read this. They're grumbling. Why? Because he had just uh, went after Levi, the tax collector, and then Levi threw a whole feast for him. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I love that the thing that they're grumbling about is not what Jesus is teaching about at that moment, not healing on a Sabbath. It's why are you eating with these people? They have a problem with Jesus and who he's eating with. So much so that Jesus, he connects the why to the how. They ask, why do you eat with people? And Jesus gives us an answer behind the why. Why? He is going after those who are sinful and need to repent. The lost sheep. Jesus, in his mind, connected eating with people to pursuing those that are lost. Let's go to the next slide. Luke 7 is the next reference to this. And Jesus is quoting and talking to the Pharisees. They always had these back and forth kind of grumbling and complaining relationship. It's very interesting. And, and Jesus is saying, you say that John came and, and he's fasting, but the Son of Man comes. And this is Jesus talking about himself. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you call the Son of Man, Jesus is referring to himself. He says, you call the Son of Man a friend of sinners. Jesus talks about food. He says, the son of man himself, I came eating and drinking. I didn't come like John fasting. I fasted once, but now I'm feasting. I'm eating and drinking. And so much so that when you look at my life, Pharisees and Sadducees, you say, I'm a friend of sinners. Jesus was that close with those who were outcasted from society so much that he was labeled a friend of sinners. And he ate with them. A couple verses later, the Pharisees invite Jesus over for dinner. He didn't just eat with sinful people that were breaking the law. He ate, we, he ate with sinful religious people who were uh, upholding the law or trying to. He, he, was, um, he was fair across the board, all sinful people, religious or not. So the Pharisees invite Jesus over for dinner, and what happens? That's when we get that beautiful story of the sinful woman, the text says, in the city, comes over, and what did she do? Poi, pour her all her alabaster jar, break all this expensive ointment and perfume on Jesus' feet. And she wipes Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. She worships Jesus. Jesus didn't even get uh, really welcomed into the home, he says. But she came in and she welcomed me and she, 
She washed my feet like you should have done. The hospitality of Jesus. And he's eating at the context. He's eating at a dinner table where this happens. And he receives and he forgives her of her sin at that moment. Fast forward to Luke 10. And we see Jesus, we saw this last week. He's sending out the apostles saying, go, I just told you the harvest is plentiful. Workers are few. And he says, go. And if you ever notice this in Luke 10, Jesus says, I want you to go home. It's a home. Finding the person of peace. Don't bring money bag, staff, or food. Why? Because I want you to eat with the people you're going to. And he talks about eating twice in those five verses about mission. Why? Because something about Jesus connected mission with hospitality, food with evangelism, sharing the good news. And he said, I want you to eat with them. Why? Because he probably knew there was something that was going to happen around the table that couldn't happen anywhere else. So as you are evangelizing and sharing the kingdom of God, break bread with the people there. Eat what they give you. That was one of Jesus' instructions and in teaching on being missional. And then Luke 14, we fast forward, Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is like a banquet. A banquet that, that the master invited, but a whole bunch of people that were invited on the guest list started having excuses. And so the master says, if they're going to have excuses, I want to fill up my home. So go out and get the, the lame and the crippled and the blind and invite them in. And the servant comes back to the master and says, hey, we still got room. And he says, okay, go out to the hedges and the highways and invite all kinds of people who are outcasted way in the marginalized part of society. Invite them in. I want my house full. And Jesus, again, in this moment, connects food and hospitality to the kingdom and how he says, I want all my people, I want as much people, as many people as possible to be around the table with me. The kingdom of God is like a feast of fellowship and hospitality. And I want all those people to be around the table. God is filling his house and filling the seats. Luke 19, we see a story of Jesus and he's walking to Jericho, through Jericho, which was intentional. And the Bible says that he gets to the place looks up and Zacchaeus is there. Now what happens? Jesus could have easily, like most of the time, had an interaction with Zacchaeus and salvation could have came right there. Healing could have came right there. Repentance could have came right there. But what did Jesus say? Anyone remember? Zacchaeus, it's time to come to your home. What a boss. I'm inviting myself over, Zacchaeus. I hope you got some soup ready, some food. I'm coming over to your home. I have to come there. Why? Because salvation has come to this household today. Salvation has come to this household. And what happens? You can imagine if you read in the lines that if Jesus is in his home, he's eating with him. He's relaxing at a table. And in that setting of hospitality, Zacchaeus repents of stealing money and says, I'm going to give fourfold what I stole. And Jesus says, yeah. Salvation came here. You know why? Because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus wasn't doing it from a high mountaintop. He wasn't doing it in the synagogue. He did it in the house of a chief tax collector who was hated upon by the religious Jewish system. Salvation came to this house around this table. Luke 22, Jesus establishes communion. We know the last supper is when Jesus broke out the new covenant and said, I'm going to shed my blood and break my body for you. One of the things that I think we've, we've taken out of context when we do communion like we do it, which is fine, is that 
Jesus was saying, do this in remembrance of me every time you do this. When he said every time you do this, he wasn't just referring to every time you gather as like a church service formally. He's saying every time you have a meal together, remember me. They were eating dinner. It wasn't a church service. It was dinner. They ate food. They drank wine. They broke bread. And then they sang a hymn. And then they walked to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus set up the table as the context for communion. Hospitality as the grounds to receive his grace. It wasn't a service. It was a table that Jesus instituted communion. And I think there's two more. Luke 24. And this is after Jesus resurrects. Communion's there. He goes to the cross. He dies. He's buried for three days. He resurrects. And I love this. He's on his way, walking with two disciples that are leaving Jerusalem, going to Emmaus. And they're like, forget this. Our, our guy that we thought was going to be the guy has died. And he's not resurrected. All our hopes are broken. And Jesus is walking with them. And remember, Jesus starts to unpack from the Old Testament Genesis all the way through the prophets, saying that all of them spoke about me. And then they invite him over. Hey, it's late. You've walked a long way. They don't know it's Jesus, by the way. And they, and they walk in and they say, hey, come stay with us. And what happens? Interesting that they didn't, they, they, didn't, they didn't see Jesus when Jesus was teaching the Bible. You know when they saw Jesus? The text says, and you can read this, that when he sat at the table and broke bread, their eyes were hope, open to who Jesus was. Wow. It, it wasn't at the teaching, even though that's powerful. At that moment, it was when Jesus sat around the table and broke bread that their eyes were open and they said, oh my gosh, that is, that is our Lord and Savior. And weren't our hearts burning when he talked about the scriptures? Our hearts were burning, but we didn't know that was Jesus until he broke bread. I wonder if the disciples connected seeing Jesus with food because they were so used to eating with him. They were so used to his ministry being around the table so much so that when Jesus did the very thing he had always done for those three years, their eyes opened to, this is Jesus. This kind of hospitality, this man around the table sharing our life together around bread. The breaking of bread, the table became a place of revelation. Then lastly, those two men were disciples, but weren't the 12 disciples. Jesus visits the 12 disciples and the men and the women around there that were close to Jesus. And I love this. This is his first interaction with the disciples post-resurrection. He goes into a room, walks through a door. Come on, somebody. Walks through a door. And then what happens? They freak out. They start putting their hand in the holes to make sure that that's Jesus. And then what does he say? Y'all got some fish? What? Jesus just resurrected the son of God and he's showing his holes in his hand. And the first thing he says around disciples, y'all got some fish? I'm sorry, but why would the son of God want, the first thing he does with his disciples is to eat with them. Because that was the heart of God, was eating with sinners and tax collectors and making them into friends and family. And the disciples became his friends and his family, and he wanted to eat with them. Why? Because at one day, Jesus said, you will eat with me in the kingdom of God. You're going to eat with me in the kingdom of God one day, and I'm telling you right now, this little taste of heaven is going to be a foretaste of what's going to happen one day. This table fellowship. 
And then we end, I skipped over this, just to end with this in Luke 15. This is the most clear example of this style of living for Jesus. The Pharisees are there around the table with Jesus. They're hanging out. And it's interesting, if you just want to flip there or write this in your notes, it's interesting what they say. I want to just read it for you. I might not have it on the screen. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Oh, so good. Tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. It's one thing for Jesus to go to sinners, but Jesus had been such a hospitable person to those who had been excluded from community and fellowship that they started coming after him. I don't know about you, but that's convicting to me that if we're living like the life of Jesus, that people that don't usually step in church should be drawing near to us. That we would be so hospitable like Jesus, so gracious, so loving, so accepting, not condoning people's lifestyle, but loving them for who they are at that moment and bringing the kingdom of God to bear in their lives, that they would say, I want to hang out with you. They were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners, receives them as a friend and eats with them. And guess what Jesus did? Jesus is hearing they're grumbling. He says, why? Why do you eat with sinners? And Jesus goes on to share what we know to be the prodigal of the lost uh, son, the prodigal, the lost coin, the lost sheep. Why does Jesus tell these stories? Because he's answering how he is seeking after the loss. They say, why are you eating? Jesus says, I'm eating with sinners because I'm going after sinners. Jesus connects eating with tax collectors and sinners as his way to pursue sinful people who need grace. I am so in awe as I see Jesus, the Holy One of God, walk around and interact with those who were unclean and not holy. And he would draw close to them so much they would draw close to him around a table. The big idea is this, that Jesus's ministry took place around a table. His interactions continually went back around a table. And hospitality was the context for his mission. Yes, Jesus taught. Yes, Jesus healed. But as we see through the gospel of Luke, that Jesus made it a priority to break bread with people who were not in fellowship with God. It was intentional. It was powerful. And I just have the question, and hopefully you do, what made Jesus decide this to be a main strategy? Like what made it so powerful and significant? Why the table? Like we could probably conjure up some ideas, but why the table? Jesus, son of God, could have done anything. I mean, pretty effective teacher, come on. He healed people. He could have done a lot of things that got bigger crowds. If you realize Jesus is limited with people around the table. He wasn't concerned with like getting the most people at one time. He was like looking and being present with the person in front of him. Jesus, infinite. But yet he was focusing on a small crowd for most of his ministry. So why? Why did Jesus choose that over all the things? In order for us to probably get the significance of the table, you've got to put yourself back in the day for understanding what the historical context was and why the Pharisees kept complaining. Why they kept complaining. Now, this is almost the same as today, so it's not really that far off. But back then, especially back then in the first century, the table was seen as a place of social boundaries. 
The table was seen as a place of social bench. So whatever, whoever you had at your table was a person that you were deciding was in and the person that wasn't at your table or the people that were outside of your circle. You tracking with me? I remember high school. I can, I can draw up a map right now. I'm not that far removed of high school, but enough to realize that I can, I can still to this day tell you where the cheerleaders sat and where the drama class people sat and where the people who love to play Dungeon and Dragons sat. Is that a game still? And uh, the football players. Uh, and I wasn't in any of those. I wasn't a nerd or cool. And so I sat apart from everyone with my own group. But I can tell you where everyone sat in the auditorium and in the area. And you know what was fascinating about lunch for those four years in high school? No one moved. No one moved. The cheerleaders were over there with the jocks. The drama people were over there. The nerdy people over here. The Dungeon Dragons over there. The, the, the gang over If we had a gang of Martinez, it was rough out there. They were over there. And it would have been taboo for the cheerleader to go to the drama folks. Oh, my gosh. It would have been not allowed if the drama folks went over to where the jocks were. Why? Because the table significant, uh, was significant around identification and belonging. You were in my circle of relational value and love and trust. And because you eat with me, you're in with me. And those who don't eat with me are not in with me. And back then, even more, because of the system of holy and unholy, clean and unclean, it was a big deal who you ate with. Again, because eating with someone across the table meant you're identifying with them. Sharing the table meant that you have this acceptance and belonging and relationship. Like, I can sit there across the table and I accept you. It doesn't mean that I approve all your life, but I accept you as a human being with valuing dignity. Jesus was doing that with people who he shouldn't have been doing that with. Now, one of the ways that why it's powerful is understanding the historical context, but you got to understand the Pharisees to understand the power of what Jesus was doing. The Pharisees would say that eating with people that were unclean made you unclean. It wasn't just that they were unclean because they broke the law. It was, if you ate with them, now you were unclean. One of the things that the Pharisees would say in kind of extra biblical writings and their extra laws they would create, they would say that you were guilty by association if you ate with someone that was sinful. Because they're sinful, now you're sinful. If they're a prostitute, then you're taking part in that. If they're a tax collector, you're stealing from your own people. If they break the law, then you're breaking the law. You are guilty by association. That's why Jesus met with so much friction with the Pharisees, grumbling all the time at who he was eating with. Because they were saying, you, a rabbi, should not eat and make yourself unclean with these unclean people. It was saying, I condone their lifestyle. That's what the Pharisees said. If you eat with this person, I can imagine them pulling Jesus aside. Jesus, you're a rabbi. You're a good teacher. You do signs and wonders. You cannot be eating with that person because you're condoning their lifestyle. You're telling them that's okay. You're accepting them. They should be excluded until they get right. And this was the mindset of the Pharisees that first let the sinner repent and the tax collector make restitution and then we will welcome them to the table. The Pharisees said, you got to get your life right and then you can sit at my table. And Jesus said, oh, your life is wrong. Let me sit at your table. Woo! Oh no, you got to get your life right, clean it up, get to church, stop sleeping with your girlfriend, then you can come over. No, Jesus said, you're the perfect candidate for my dinner party tonight. 
You're the perfect person for me to break bread with. Oh, you got a messed up life? Oh, you've had a divorce? Oh, you're looking at pornography? I'm there tonight. Why? Because I came for that person. I came for that person. And you don't have to clean up your life in order to have fellowship with the Son of God. Oh, that is counterintuitive to that day and even probably to our day. Reformation was required before fellowship could take place, but not for Jesus. Jesus was doing something shocking and upside down. He was being hospitable. And just so you don't think it's like this word hospitality is a cute word that we're throwing around because like hearth and hand and magnolia and target, uh, they didn't take that word. Jesus took that word and made it real. And the word hospitality is not just like referencing to Jesus. There's scriptures all around the Bible, like Romans and Hebrews. And you know, even a qualification of an elder is to what? Be hospitable. Hospitality is a big thing. Romans 12 says, practice hospitality. First Peter says, show hospitality without grumbling. Don't complain, do it. But what does that mean to be hospitable? Does it mean just have dinner with people? Here's what's beautiful. The word hospitality is two words. That means the love of the stranger. Love of the stranger. Love of the outsider. It's making the outsider into their friend. Can I say this? It's the pro-vax eating with the anti-vax. Uh-oh. Oh, I'm anti-vax. Great. Hospitality would mean you would have the pro-vax over for dinner and break bread. It would be like nowadays, Tucker Carlson eating with Anderson Cooper. Uh-oh. Whoa. Like, whoa, two, you can't do that. We're on different sides of the spectrum there. But you wear masks, I, and I, I don't. Jesus would say, to practice hospitality like I did, you're inviting someone that's on the outside of your relational system, your value system, your belief system, into your circle of love. Despite what they do. Despite who they eat with. Despite their past or even their present. Jesus says, I welcome you in. Hospitality is always, always about love for the stranger. Yes, we want to be hospitable to one another and to love each other, but sometimes Christians stop there and we're like hospitable in our small groups. But Jesus says, hospitality is looking outside of your comfort zone, outside of your position, outside of your relational orbit to find the person who is different than you and bring them in around the table. Why? Why was this so powerful? The reason Jesus ate with sinners, I love this. You got to read this with me. The reason Jesus ate with sinners was because it was a visible demonstration of the gospel of grace, that God is not counting our sins against us, but welcoming us freely into relationship. That's beautiful. Visible demonstration of the gospel of grace. I'm here to uh, to give you grace, and I'm going to show you what that looks like by eating with you. Romans 5 says that God loved us while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, God loved us. It wasn't like, I'm going to love you when you clean your life up. It says that while we were enemies of God, he reconciled us. While we were enemies of God, he brought us near to him. The table is where we see Jesus inviting those who have been excluded And over and over again, he befriends prostitutes and zealots and tax collectors. And you got to know that in that day, because it was coming into the new covenant, they were very sharp on the law. But this is what Jesus was doing when he was eating with people. 
Do you understand that where the law drew a line, because of Jesus, grace pulled up a seat. Oh, I love it. Where the law drew a line and said, you got to get right to cross over, grace pulls up a seat and says, come sit down. The law says you're excluded until you figure out how to get back in to make the right sacrifices, to get the right contributions, to tithe the right amount, to live the right way, to reform your life in worship. And grace says, I'm going to come at your table and pull up a seat while you're excluded. A visible demonstration of the message of Jesus. Can't help to think, but the verse in Romans that says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not the people on the streets with the picket signs that's going to lead people to repent. That might happen because God might use that, but we should probably do what Jesus did. And what Jesus did was be kind to sinners, and that melted our hard hearts so we could repent. We are so stone cold sometimes to think you don't get fellowship. I can't sit with you and hang out with you because you're living wrongly. And when you get right, then we can hang out. Jesus said, no, my fellowship is what actually reformed their hearts. I wasn't waiting for their obedience to have fellowship. My fellowship caused them to want to obey. Why? Because I sat across, I looked in their eyes, in the wounds, in the vacant holes that they had in their souls, and said, you were made in God's image, and you were worth pursuing. And Jesus brought the gospel of grace to be tangible in people's lives, tangible in people's lives. Where the law drew a line, grace pulls up a seat. So the last few minutes, I just want to share with you what this looks like in real time. Share a quick story to share some really practical tips on how this breaks out. A couple stories I want to share with you. As I look through my life in this last seven years of being in Oakland, next week will be seven years of being in Oakland, uh, it has been a journey. For sure, up and down, highs, lows, crazy twists and turns, God's faithfulness all throughout every year, insanely faithful and gracious. One of the things that we decided as a family when we moved out here and we've been trying to pursue ever since was to be hospitable to people we didn't know. We knew that we had to get to know people in Oakland in order to plant a church and to reach people. That we weren't just going to pass out mailers and hope for people to come to us. We wanted to actually have dinner with people before we just said, come to our service. And we didn't even start a service. We just had an apartment that wasn't that nice and not the best area. And we said, let's be intentional in making sure that we know our neighbors before we try to start a service. So one of the things we did, the address, I remember, 3206 Park Boulevard. That means so much to me. We would sit around the table once a month with our church plant team. And our apartment complex was full of eight apartments. And in those eight apartments, there were people uh, that spoke different languages, that language barriers from different continents and countries, uh, different belief systems and religions and backgrounds. It was a melting pot. What, what made us fall in love with Oak and the diversity it was a melting pot of people that should have never been together, but they lived together. And we said, what if we do something crazy and just had them all over for dinner once a month, every single month? So we started doing that. We called it Orange Fork. And every month when the Orange Fork was out, I don't know if we ever even put the Orange Fork out, we told our neighbors, yo, it's that time, come. And on Sunday morning, instead of having a service like we would do with our church plant team, we had them all come over. If you look at the next slide, this is a picture of one of those mornings, kind of pixelated, but our apartment was pretty small. And uh, those are 
probably 95% of the neighbors, his family is from Ivory Coast, Africa. This is his family is from Mexico, down in probably Central America, Mexico. And so we had all these folks over, and it wasn't anything fancy. We were eating on paper plates and sharing life together. But what I started to find out, what we started to experience, was that something started happening as they went from strangers to neighbors to family. Hospitality, Rosario Butterfield says that practicing hospitality is getting the stranger to be a neighbor and the neighbor to be a family and a friend. That's what you're trying to do. And so we didn't know really how to make this special. So we just sat on the floor and asked questions and listened to stories and laughed. And what we saw was a beautiful transformation of relationship where we not only were entering a place where we could host them, but they started hosting us. And every other week we get a call or invite to their home or a party or quinceanera, whatever it was, we would get invited into their life now. We went from neighbors to now part of their family all because we sat around the table. People who have never stepped foot in a church, were not going to a church, had no plans to come to a church, sat in our living room once a month and we got to share the gospel with them. Hospitality. Hospitality is a need of the hour in this post-Christian culture. We think about secularism and people not believing in Jesus, not going to church anymore. And are we going to say, to be missional, we're just going to put our flag, our, 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 our flag down and say we're going to wait for the world to come to us? Or we're going to say we're going to pick up our things and go to them? Are we going to stop doing church? No. But this is two hours on a Sunday. And we have so much time to be able to open up our homes to people who don't know Jesus and share a meal. That's why I said you can do this tonight or tomorrow is to open up your home. But the thing is, not just to open our home to people who are friends with us, for people who don't know us and don't believe what we believe, don't look like we look, don't vote like we vote. Those kind of people who live in different lifestyles, that's what it looks like. If you look at the next picture, this is a couple, probably a year later where we were invited to these parties and we were literally not just the only white people there. Uh, it was the fact that we had nobody to speak English with. And I love that. You know why? Because they made us the, the, the uh, honored guests. We we, didn't, we, didn't, we just wanted to come to be with them. And they moved their family from the main table and sat us down there. And I remember one time, Tiffany, you probably remember this. Maybe you were with us. We were, we were a small group inside of the movement church, small group. And we got a call from one of our neighbors. We had already moved a couple years later, Arturo. And he said, hey, we're having a party for our daughter. Could you come? I said, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. Forget small group. Let's take our whole small group down there. Can we bring our whole group? Yeah, sure. Again, in the garage, nothing fancy, around a, a plastic lifetime table, and their family and the birthday girl was there, and they get over and say, get up, get up, get up, and they clean it all up. They kick their family out of the only table in the building, and they put us down there. Hospitality. It wasn't because we did anything nice. It's because, because we treated them as family and friends. They treated us as family and friends, and we had an inside relationship into their lives and their parties. They still call us to this day and invite us over to things. And we haven't lived there for five and a half years. 
And I tell you that because we did not do anything that you cannot do tonight. Open our home with no agenda, but being obedient to the Holy Spirit, to listen, to be good listeners, to be good question askers, to be people who can serve them well and make them feel like they are valued. And something happened. We realized that our decision to open our home led to people opening up their hearts. That one decision we made to open our home led to people opening up our hearts. We've done this all throughout, inviting people off the streets into our homes where they became random strangers into people who started coming every week for dinner over a summer and came to our birthday parties. This is not difficult. It's not rocket science. It just takes us getting out of our comfort zone to be able to say, I'm reaching out and going to people who need it. The table broke down the walls. And as I wrote that, I feel like the Lord was saying, the table did break down the walls, but some of us are struggling, have a bad taste of evangelism because we're trying to share the gospel with the wall still up. And I wonder why Jesus, the son of God, who could have zapped people's hearts to be melted into from stone to soft clay, he ate with them. Why? Because I wonder if eating with them diffused the issue that would have been the blockage and broke down the wall so the good news could come forth. The table can break down the walls of exclusion and hostility and division in this divided culture. We are so polarized as a, as a not just churches in general, but the society as in general. And the one, excuse me, the one thing that will bring people together unlike anything else is having a meal. I don't care if it's mac and cheese from Kraft in a paper plate. It's not about what you're eating. It's about the heart that makes strangers into friends. Jesus' mission was tied to that. And I want you to think of hospitality like this. That hospitality moves the gospel from being text in a cookbook to a savory dish to be enjoyed. Sometimes, for us it's more, but sometimes the gospel is something that's in this old Bible and people aren't reading it. Yeah, 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 I know about it. And so they might know, they think they know the message. And what our call is, is to take the truth of the gospel and embody it in real situations and ways. And I want to encourage us, we can't settle for giving out the recipe without also cooking them the meal. We can't settle for giving out the recipe and saying, here's the four steps of salvation without ever cooking them the meal to taste what it feels like. Grace has a taste. Grace has a taste. Grace feels a way. In this culture, grace will stand out. In this culture, hospitality will open eyes. In this culture, love will say, oh my gosh, what's happening? Something is happening here. And you get to say, I'm just doing what the gospel said. I'm just doing what Jesus did for me. You know why it became easy? I'm not this courageous gospel share, but you know why it became easy to share the gospel in my home? Sometimes they ask about it. Why? Because they felt it before I even said anything. They experienced it before. I didn't say, you got to listen to this before you come sit on my couch. But you know what I was doing? I wasn't watering in the gospel. I was trying for them to feel and experience the gospel so that when I did share it, it lined up with my actions. And too many of us are so concerned about the message without living out the way that it should be feeling in real life. We can't have this gospel message of grace over judgment, belonging over hostility and exclusion, and then never live it out. And maybe that's the key and the potency behind evangelism in our day and age is wedding the message with the life. And Jesus wants to close that gap in all of our lives 
where grace is not just a theory we teach people, it is something they experience. And they, they, not might, they might not even say this is for me, but they said that was good. Oh, I'm fine with that. They might not be able to make a decision for salvation that day, but they say that was good. That grace, that was good. That I, I, felt belo- I felt belonging. I felt acceptance. I felt mercy. I felt that you were listening to my story and affirming that I'm made in the image of God. That breaks down the walls. That breaks down the walls. So I just want just to give you a few things on how to do this this next week, this next season. A couple of different ways to think about this as we land the plane this morning ways that can look practical for you. If you're thinking this is way over our head, or maybe it's just too simple, and, and it, you're kind of confused on how I could start this, um, just a couple perspective shifts that would help. How do we practice this this week? How do we, how do we put ourselves in a position where this can be a reality uh, this week and not just an ideal for a next season? Number one, I would say the most important thing we can do before starting to open our home is to fight against the pull of self when it comes to our homes. I don't know about you, but our homes, because of the world's ways of saying this, our homes, we see our homes mainly as places of isolation, relaxation, entertainment, and escape. Our homes have become our own castles where we draw up our moat and say, I'm free now from other people. Now, don't get me wrong, especially for the introverts, I understand you were with people all day and you want to be at home. What I'm not saying is uh, don't rest. Here's what I'm saying. Don't rest and lean into rest at the expense of following Jesus. I'm not saying don't have your alone time. I'm not saying don't have family time. I'm not saying don't ha- take a nap or watch a Netflix show. We're not legalists. But I am saying we don't do those things at the expense of living in the way of Jesus, which is opening our homes and our lives for people. So as long as you can say, I'm doing that, you gotta shift the perspective because we get so bogged up in like living out here and then the home is cooked, done. It's entertainment time. It's relaxation time. It's escape from the world. And if we have that that pull of self-dominating the way we treat our home, we will never open it up to people because that will seem as an inconvenience. And might I say, you might have to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel from time to time. And that's a beautiful thing. I've had people over, over the last seven years, uh, that I did not want to have over because I was too tired, too exhausted. And you know what I did? I didn't try to put on a mask. I laid on the couch. (laughs) You know what that did? It showed them, I I still care about you to come over, but I'm tired. And I told them, yo, here's some food. Let's just hang out on the couch. Nothing special. You can do that even when you're tired. You can do that when you're having a bad day. But it won't happen if you're looking at your home saying, this is just for me and not for anyone else. You've been given a home, an apartment, a bedroom. I don't know what it is, but you live with a roof probably over your head if you're hearing my voice. You've been given that to steward for the gospel and mission, not just for your own pleasure and comfort. Fight against the pull of self. Number two. Reframe hospitality. Here's why I just really want to be clear when it comes to hospitality and you opening up your home. Number one, aim to welcome people, not entertain. Your goal for hospitality and having people over is not entertaining them to have the best candles and music and the best carpet and the best feel and the best food and the best silverware and your best cups and the best alcohol. And so people leave not feeling welcome, but impressed and entertained. People aren't needing to be entertained. They're needing to feel accepted. They're not needing another show and fun experience. They can go other places. Disneyland is more fun than your home. 
Netflix is more entertaining than dinner at your house. But they cannot find belonging on Netflix. They cannot find acceptance in Disneyland. They can only find that with another Christian, another human says, I love you, I see you, welcome to my table. Focus on welcoming, not entertaining. Work to serve them, not impress them. You are there to serve as Jesus has come to serve, not impress them so they feel good and overwhelmed or in awe of what you're doing and how you're doing it and living. Number three, focus on being present over polished. I know some of us in this church, you might feel like your home has to look right. It has to be clean. Everything has to be perfect for you to have people over. But again, people just want you to be present across the table. So if that means cooking an easier meal so you can actually spend more time with the person, trust me, that's the way of Jesus. doesn't mean you can't have a nice meal, but the goal of hospitality is presence over perfection, over impressing someone, over polished ways of doing things, but having them around your table. And lastly, prioritize listening over lecturing. This is a big thing that we worked on that Alpha talks about as well that when you're around a table being hospitable, you would say, I'm going to stop talking and listen and ask good questions. Now, you're probably wondering, what do I say, Chris, if I have these unbelieving coworkers and neighbors over? Here's what you say. Nothing. Ask them about their story. You don't have to have a four-point agenda. <laughs> you don't have to have a message to share. Start with just sharing what you're going on in your life and ask them about their story. And trust me, because I've done it so much, the last couple of years, when you ask someone their story, they're probably going to tell it. And chances are they're probably going to be able to ask you about your story. And you get a chance to be faithful to share what God has done in your life to people who want to listen. But you've asked good questions. You've opened their heart to say, I care about you. I hear. You get to pray for them. You get to ask, hey, how did that affect your life? How did your mom leaving at this age affect your confidence? You get to dig in in ways that are acceptable. Why? Because you're around the table, not just in a cubicle or in a, on a side street. With, you're in your home. It breaks down the walls and people just want to be heard. People just want to be heard. If you look at the rate of people on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, chatting, 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 that is a sign that people want to be heard. Let's hear them out in a better context and place. And just lastly, if you want thinking, man, but how do I really get started? Those are good principles. I could think about it, but how do I get started? Let me just give you a roadmap that you can do for tomorrow or Monday. I really encourage all of us to do this because we have the ability. And maybe our, our nights are so busy that we have to create some margin. Jesus had margin to have people invite him over for dinner. He wasn't always busy every single night. Pick a night and invite people over. Like, I'm not joking. Because if you don't pick a night, you're going to, the Netflix show is going to come on or you're going to be tired or you're going to have a hard day and that night will go into, I have plans, but because I didn't make plans, I'm making it about me and the pull of self will get you. Pick a night, commit to it, honor the Lord, say, I'm going to invite some folks over that I don't know. Make things simple and welcoming. Invite those you're unfamiliar with. We want to be hospitable with one another, but try to, hopefully you have coworkers, neighbors, people, you can say, I'm inviting them because I don't know you. Come over. I got some good food and drink. Let's hang out. Let's hang out. You can do that this week. Ask to hear their story, questions, and treat them as family and friend. Don't treat them as this awkward guest you've never talked to. Treat them like you would your brother, sister, mom, and dad, if you had a good relationship with them. Treat them as family and friends. Treat them like they belong. Treat them like they've been there forever. Treat them like they belong around your table. Jesus did that, and it changed the world. You can do that. 
And it might just change the hearts of people that you're interacting with more than just trying to slam a message down without ever even hearing their story. I want to end with this quote if you want to stand with me. Alan Hirsch says this. He's a missional church planner, theologian, and I love, I love what he says. He says, if every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around the table once a week, once a week to neighbors, we would eat our way into the kingdom of God. You want to see the kingdom? It might just be that you just need to open your home to start seeing it come even more. Once a week, once a week, let me encourage you. You have 21 meals a week, 21 meals. Surely you and I, as people of Jesus, can spare one or two of them to be intentional. Can we do that? 21 meals, spare one, start with one a week. Start with one a week. You don't need to have seven or eight. Start with one a week. Be intentional. Invite someone that, have, that you don't know. See what God does. Pray before. Watch the Holy Spirit work. And you're going to get confidence that you get to live on mission just like Jesus did and see results that you're wanting to see. And I believe this church, this city, would change if the church of Jesus just opened their homes and invited people that don't belong around the table, around the table. Amen? Amen. Would you pray? with me. Father, we, we, we do, we, we want this more than anything, God, to see your kingdom come on earth. To see your kingdom come on earth, God. We don't want to make it complicated. We don't want to make it super um, challenging. You haven't made it like that. You've made it simple. You, God, has set a pathway in Jesus to show us a model for what it looks like to see the mission come forward and the kingdom come. And that's opening up our homes and our lives and our hearts to people. You've done that to us. You've invited us around the table. You gave us grace instead of judgment. So Lord, we just want to do the same thing to people. We just want to receive the gospel afresh and then give it away. So that people can not just hear about grace, they would experience grace. And Lord, we pray by faith that the experience of grace around our tables these next few weeks and months would lead to people coming to know you. People desiring to want more. That was a good appetizer of grace, but I want to learn more. What is this Jesus? Why does he accept people? Why does he forgive sinners? What does he offer about life? And that the message of grace accompanied with the, the experience of grace would build your kingdom on this earth. Use us, Lord. Empower us. Fill us with your spirit. Right now, church, would you just say this in your, in your own language? Would you just ask God to use you and to empower you? I don't want to preach this message and then go back to our homes, go back to our normal weeks, busy and for ourselves and not and be intentional. Maybe some of you are doing this already. Would you just say, God, use me in your own way. God, use me. Give me the courage to invite people. Give me the margin, the energy, whatever you need. Would you ask God right now to give you what you need to be obedient to the way of Jesus? We're here, Lord. Use us. May the gospel drop on our hearts afresh so we would reach out just like we were lost to those who were lost. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Would you lift your eyes up, your, your spiritual eyes up? We get to sing about the cross, the, the very thing that Jesus did to bring outsiders to be insiders. Would this gospel give you fuel as we sing about Jesus on the cross, give you fuel to live a hospitable life to those outside?